Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, that's found in the Old Testament. And as you can tell, we are going to be talking about Matthew 24, but our story for the next section actually begins in Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah was a prophet who was near that end time of Israel before Jesus was to come, that 400 years before Jesus was to come. And in it, he's given a prophecy of judgment on Israel's enemies. He was looking for that time that there would be a coming peace and prosperity when Israel would once again be free from their enemies, the king would come, and they would reign victorious. So in Zechariah, hopefully you found it in chapter 9, let's start with verse 9, where he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bows shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea, and from the river, speaking of Euphrates, to the ends of the earth." As we look at this, we see that this here is a prophecy of when the Messiah would come. This was their expectation, and rightly so, of what Zechariah said, is that the Messiah would come, though he would be humble and he would come on a colt, he would be the end of all wars. Ephraim no longer will need its war horses. Uh, Judah will no longer need its chariots. The king will rule over all the land that God had promised, not only to Abraham, but also to Isaac and to Jacob, to Moses, and finally with Joshua, as we looked at the book of Joshua. It would finally come to be. Now, if we look at that first part in verse 9, Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation, is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a donkey. If we were to go back to Matthew, or go forward, I should say, to Matthew 21, and back as we read that last year, is that was fulfilled then in Jesus' triumphal entry. If you go back to Matthew chapter 21, and you would see it there in Matthew chapter 21, you'll see now Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem. We've spoken about that. Remember that was where Jesus asserts his authority. And as it we celebrated on Palm Sunday, as he was going in, everyone left the city of Jerusalem and they put down palm branches and Jesus comes on a donkey. But what's interesting, looking at verse 4, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foil of a beast of burden. Now, as they read this and they experienced this, they say, This then is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, and he's coming. So it would be very common for the disciples then, they thought that the kingdom was next. The kingdom of the Messiah, the world kingdom, the national kingdom was next. That's how you would read Zechariah. However, Jesus explains about the unexpected delay in setting up his kingdom. 
As the Jews would read Zechariah chapter 9, 9 through verse 10, they would see that as one event. But what Jesus is saying here, no, there isn't. Verse 9 will be fulfilled, but verses 10 will not be fulfilled until an unexpected delay is here. In other words, I came and I inaugurated my kingdom, but I will not firmly take over in verse 10, where it says that I will rule forever. He says, there's going to be an unexpected delay. You don't see in the prophets reading. So let me share with you what's going on. And that's what we've been looking at in chapter 24. The unexpected delay in return to judgment. So the disciples rightfully thought, well, he must be ready to do it. But now we see that Jesus describes his return as we go here in Matthew 24, verses 29. And you have to remember that up to this point, the disciples as of yet do not understand that the Messiah must die, that he'll be resurrected, be with them for 40 days, and then leave again. Now, they thought he would come shortly soon after that, but for you and I, it's been 2,000 plus years. So in it, Jesus says, I think I need some explaining to be done. And Father, we look forward to your explanation here as we continue in Matthew 24. As we talk about your second coming, the time when you'll come with power. Open up our hearts to receive. Let me speak words that are edifying, that are encouraging, that come from your word. Let me not speak my opinion. Let me not speak my thoughts, but your word. And may we receive, and Lord, may your will be done as we look forward to that great day. God's people said, Amen. So do you see where we're going? The disciples, as, as you look at Zechariah, it seems like, well, when he comes on that donkey, then he's going to defeat all the Roman Empire, the Roman enemies, and, and he's going to set up his kingdom and they're going to rule in their land. That seems natural, right? But what they didn't understand is that between verse 9 and verse 10, for our reading, they didn't have verses then, but for us, there was going to be unexpected delay between when he would come in and begin his kingdom to when he would finally put all enemies under his feet and he would rule in a national way. And so as we come to Matthew 24, we've been reading about that. He says, these signs must happen first. As the disciples ask, well, when is the close of the age? We thought that you're going to do that now. What's going on here? We need to understand. So we looked about the, the sign of the temple destruction and, the, and all the supernatural and natural and, and the falling away, all those types of things that were going to happen before Christ returns. But in Matthew chapter 24, let's look at verse 29. We had just already come to that place in verse 27 and 28, where we talked about the parable there. We saw again that he says that there's going to be a time of great tribulation that the world has not seen. So in verse 29, we see then immediately after the tribulation of those days. What's the tribulation? The time of suffering, the time of trying that will happen. He says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What we see here is a tremendous event as Jesus describes it. After seven years of tribulation, there will follow a great supernatural upheaval as you look at those things. The tribulation, the moon will not give its light. The sun will be darkened. The stars will fall from the heavens. Now, as you look at those, there's some descriptive language there. Jesus uses some of the Old Testament descriptive languages that always coincide with God's judgment. As an example, let's turn to Isaiah real quickly. Take your Bible and turn to Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 13. This is a language or the way it's used would be very familiar to the Jews of that time. In Isaiah chapter 13, we're going to look at verse 9, but in here we're seeing that at this time that Isaiah is writing and he's talking about the time when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians would come and they would surround Israel and they would conquer Israel and disperse the people. And in it, before that happens, God is saying, they may do this, but I will guarantee you that I will judge Nebuchadnezzar. There will be a judgment on that nation. As you go through history, you see that God did judge it. So chapter 13 is about a specific time. But if you look at chapter 13, look at verse 9. He says, behold, the day of the Lord comes. Now, when you see the day of the Lord, it's mentioned quite a bit in Scripture. But day of the Lord does not always mean an eschatological end times. It doesn't mean it's always the last days. The day of the Lord is an idiom or phrase that means judgment is coming. Okay? It just means judgment is coming. It's like saying, uh, you better be good because your dad's coming home. Okay, what does that mean? What is that phrase? When your dad gets home, does that mean you're just sharing them that dad will come home after work? What does it mean? You're in trouble. Yeah, spanking or something is coming. That's what day of the Lord here means. Because here he says, look at verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And so we see that day of the Lord at one time did happen. In other words, he's giving some language to help describe what's going on. We also see that in Ezekiel 32.7 and Joel 2. But also, not only does the Old Testament use it, but the New Testament also uses the same language in reference to God's judgment. Revelation 6, 13-14, 2 Peter chapter 3, 7, 10, and 12. In other words, when you see that type of language, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall. Those are all phrases that say judgment is at hand. Judgment is coming. So Jesus, when he starts to use this phrase, all of a sudden, this is going to prop the disciples to think back to that type of language. And they're going to recognize this is judgment. This is a time that we may not like but it's often used figuratively in the Old Testament. But I believe, as many others do, that this will also be literally fulfilled as Christ comes back. I believe that there will be a supernatural, cosmic change in our heavens and the earth. Because when He comes back, it says that He's come to renew things. I don't believe this is the restored uh, earth and heaven, but I believe that God is preparing things for the millennium in which the earth will be a little bit better. Maybe not totally restored, and there's some debate on that. But as we look at it, I believe there's going to be some supernatural things that are going on. How many of you get cable or some type of dish network or some type of thing like that? Anyone ever watch the sci-fi channel? Okay, anyone willing to admit that they watch the sci-fi channel? They're always having those types of things. I clicked on it the other day, and there was a movie called catastrophic seven you know what that meant 
that there were six other movies called Catastrophic. <laughs> catastrophic 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I thought by the time you get to 7, what else is there left to be catastrophic? But you see those types of movies. I used to call them the disaster movies of the week, you know. Well, now, you know, and, you know, 2012, all those types of things in which, okay, now on this movie, it's a meteor. In this movie, it's an earthquake. In this movie, it's a volcano. In this movie, it's um, the ozone. Who knows what it might be, you know. But in it, you're always seeing these cosmic, and we laugh, and sometimes you think, oh, how implausible. But let me tell you, there will be no laughing at this time. There will not be a movie of the week made of this event. Because I believe the Bible is teaching here, as Jesus is saying, he's saying, I've been pointing to this day. I have used this language to say judgment is coming. And what he's saying here, judgment is coming. And it's going to be an event that's going to terrify all who see it. Though some will see it may bring rejoicing. And I tell you, we live in a day and age where anything happens. It's been a year since Haiti. I don't know if you remember, if you remember when that happened, what an event that was. We've had mudslides that have killed thousands, volcanoes that have killed thousands. Sometimes I feel sometimes we, uh, we're a little bit sheltered here in America. I was talking to my wife the other day, or just yesterday, about the tribulation. And we talk about the great tribulation, and we talk about how terrible it is and how awful it's going to be. Sometimes, and we think, oh, we're not looking forward to that day. And I said to her, I wonder what the Christians in China feel like, or in Indonesia, or in Egypt. I bet you they believe they're going through the great tribulation right now because they are being persecuted for their faith. Their homes are being burned. They're being torn asunder. Many probably are leaving the faith of the church because they no longer want to be part of it. They're experiencing that, but we make everything so U.S. or American-centric. For some, their great tribulation is happening now, and there's going to even be a greater time. So sometimes I think we need to change our thinking. What we see is it's going to be a time of tragedy. But in it, there's some supernatural cosmic upheaval as he looks in verse 29. But he goes, not only will the powers of heaven be shaken, but in verse 30, look what it says. Then, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Amen. Now, some people have taken that sign to mean, well, that's what Constantine saw when he was in battle. Remember Constantine? He was the Roman emperor during 300 AD. And as he was fighting, remember the story goes, he saw the sign of the blazing cross in the sky that says, and by this you shall conquer. And he had a wartime foxhole type conversion to the faith. And all of a sudden Christianity became a religion that was being persecuted to the state religion. I don't believe it was that. Because he goes on, he says that they will see the sign or the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth mourn, and then they will see the Son of Man. Now, this reflects the seeing the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great, great glory. Again, that phrase there for you and I is just a sentence. But to the disciples and the Jews of that time, that sentence conveyed a lot of meaning. Just as if you were to go to someone somewhere and just say, well, the Twin Towers fell on 9-11. To some people, that's a fact. But for others, it creates great things. This past week, we just celebrated 
25 years of the Challenger when it exploded. How many of you remember where you were when that exploded? To some people, that's just a fact. Uh, to me, it was a pretty powerful thing because I worked for a company at the time that built many of the systems. And at first, we thought maybe it was something that we did. And I remember being there, and I saw it. We were watching it. I was in the, with the public affairs group, and we were watching it, and all of a sudden, boom. And that whole day, I'll tell you, that whole day, our corporate office was so quiet. The aviation was so quiet. And as the news came out, eventually we were cleared. But again, it was something that meant a lot. So this phrase here, the see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, this would reflect what Daniel said in chapter 7 of Daniel 13 through 14. I'm just going to read it. Daniel writes, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, speaking of God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, that all nations and all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So for them, their mind would go back to the visions of Daniel, where Daniel spoke, and you might remember the great dream that he had of the statue, in which it, was the, it represented the Babylonian kingdom. And then the second part of the statue represented the Medes and the Persians. And then the third one represented the Greeks, Alexander the Great. And then the fourth part of the bottom part of it represented the Roman Empire. So four empires, world empires, that for the most part ruled the whole known world at that time. They ruled it with power. And they would disperse the nations. Some were a little bit more gracious to the people. Others were not. But at the end of that vision, there was another kingdom that came and crushed the foot of that last empire. And in it, what God is saying is that there will be four world empires, but yet there will come one other kingdom that will be greater than all those. And as we see here, all people, all nations, all languages shall serve him. And his dominion is everlasting and it will never pass away. Think about it. Think of all the kingdoms and the empires that the world has had. Whether it's the Babylonians, whether it's the Greeks and the Romans, or Genghis Khan, or or Napoleon, or some of the others that that have ruled, to our day, even the Soviet Union, who at one point ruled quite a few nations. Empires come and empires go. America, great empire, so to speak, if we say empire. It's only been in existence 200 and something years. But even now, we see the decay. Why? Because God says those kingdoms are there for God's glory. But one day, there will be a kingdom that will never end. And by the way, most kingdoms are destroyed how? Within or without? Within. This kingdom will be so strong that nothing will ever be destroyed. In other words, the kingdom to come will be greater. So not only does that phrase, when they see that the Son of Man coming down, and you might recall from last year that Jesus ascribed the Son of Man to himself. He said, I am 
that son of man. That phrase meant something to the Jews at that time. So not only would it reflect that kingdom, but it also was something that Christ himself said about himself to the religious leaders. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 26, 63 through 64, Jesus is standing before the religious leaders. This is the time before his crucifixion. They are trying to find something in which to accuse him of, something that will stick so they could kill him. And the high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you or I beg you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So these phrases mean something. It means that the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, His kingdom will be coming with power and will have dominion from all things. We think of Philippians, where he says that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. But it also not only reflects what Daniel said, and not only what Christ himself will say in a day or so, but it also reflects John's testimony in Revelation 1, verse 7, where he says, Behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. What are we seeing here in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30? That Jesus is coming as he said he would. Amen? His kingdom will be forever. His dominion will be forever. All will bow their knees before him and confess that he is Lord. And let me tell you, here's something I want you to understand. Is that his return is different than his first coming. The second coming is wildly different than his first coming. The second advent more than the first. Take your Bibles real quickly. Isaiah 53. And I think we need to understand this. Is that his return is so different from the first. And I want you to see that. Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53, we're going to look at 1 through 10. I'm going to kind of capsulate a little bit. But his return is different than his first coming. In the first coming, his, he was wounded and despised. He was meek and humble. Listen to what he says in Isaiah. He had no form, speaking of the Messiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. In verse 3, he says he was despised and rejected by man, by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Look at verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace, and with his stripes we were healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land for the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And he made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him 
to grief. When Jesus first came, it was humble. Came as a baby, for the most part defenseless from himself. He came as one who submitted himself to the physical life form. He submitted to his parents. He submitted to teaching from others. Submitted himself to work. He submitted himself to people who did not like him, who did not understand him. Even his own family misunderstood him. Knowing that all of that led to the cross. But if you take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 19, just go to the end of the Bible and then turn back to chapter 19. We see that in his first coming, he was wounded. He was despised. He was meek and humble. He opened not his mouth. He was crushed and afflicted. But in Revelation chapter 19, starting with verse 11, as it gives a description of Jesus' second coming, look at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. And the one setting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, wide and pure, were following him on white horses. Look at verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His second coming will be so different than his first. The first one in powerless, the second one in power. The first one to save, the second to come and judge. We see that in verse 30 where he says that they will mourn. And first I think, well, that must be repentance, but it doesn't give us that indication. The mourning is, is they're going to recognize their error. Seeing as he comes, it says that the nations will mourn or the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see him. I think it's at that time, as he breaks forth in that supernatural, cosmic way, as the sun is darkened and the moon gives no light, and the earth is shaken, as he comes down as faithful and true, all the tribes are going to see him. And the mourning is, we were wrong. I think they're going to say, oh my God, we were wrong. We were in error. But unfortunately, it doesn't lead to repentance because the time is too late. They realize that judgment and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but yet they're too late in their fear of an almighty God. In verse 31, we see the gathering. So as he breaks through the sky, he's coming down to earth. His return is so much different than his first. You'll see that one of the first things as he breaks through, there's a gathering in verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. A trumpet call is associated from the English Study Bible. I like to read this. It says a trumpet call is associated in Jewish end times thought, as in Isaiah chapter 18 and, and chapter 27. And it's also used in Christian writings from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. 
And it's associated with the appearance of the Messiah. A trumpet and then the Messiah appears. The involvement of angels probably indicates that when Jesus returns, he will not only gather to himself all the believers alive on the earth, but he'll also bring with him all the redeemed who are in heaven. If you take your Bibles very quickly, I just want to get to this point very quickly. Matthew chapter 13. As we look at the great parables, there was a parable of the weeds. And in the parable of the weeds, you might remember that set that the man went and he planted a bunch of wheat. But at night, his enemies, those who did not like him, went and planted a lot of their tares, but we'll call them weeds. And they said, what should we do? Should we go and pull up all the weeds? And he says, no, if you pull up the weeds, you, you may pull up some of the wheat. He says, what we'll do is we'll let them grow together. And then at the end, we'll separate them. Makes sense, right? It's like if you're fishing, you go a lot of fish. You separate the good from the bad. You know, you kind of do it that. But look at Matthew chapter 13. Jesus explains this parable in verse 36. It says, explain to us then the parable of the weeds of the field. And look at verse 37. Jesus said, the one who sows the good seeds is a son of man. Again, Jesus uses that phrase for himself. That means something. The field is the world and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. Those that have embraced him. The weeds are the sons of the evil, the ones who have rejected Christ's kingdom. Verse 39, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age. Again, what did the disciples ask? When are the signs of the close of the age? So the harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Look at 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of age. 41. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. The close of the age, the angels are going to gather all the elect, all those that have embraced his kingdom. So my goal this morning here as we look at the return of the king is that there are going to be some supernatural cosmic upheaval. We are going to see some things that have never seen before. I believe they will be literal. I believe there will be things that will just shake us to our core. We will see the Son of Man coming in which he represents the Son of Man whose dominion is forever and as he gathers. Here's the conclusion. I believe it's teaching us four things. First one. Jesus' return will be a worldwide event. It says here that all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will all see. The second is Jesus' turn will be visible and noticeable. In other words, you will not be busy. If you're down in the basement and you're playing Black Ops or Pac-Man, you're going to notice. There is going to be an interruption that's going to cause you to see this. I don't believe anyone's going to miss that. So it will be visible. You will see it. It's not a spiritual event. There are some that teach, well, the sign is like some type of banner or the sign is that the Spirit of Christ will come back and everyone will then accept Jesus. No. There is a visible and noticeable event. So not only will it be a worldwide, not only will it be visible and noticeable. Number three, Jesus' return will be bodily and personable. 
Jesus said, as I am, touch my hands, touch my side. We will see him coming down and it will be something we will recognize him for who he is. All nations, all tribes will recognize. It'll be interesting. Will he look like those pictures that we have of Jesus sending, you know, all those pictures looking up in heaven or doing those types of things? I tell you what, I don't think the human mind imagination can capture the beauty power, and maybe even the terror for some of our righteous king. But it's going to be personal. It's going to be bodily. He is coming back. He's not sending just a representative. It will be him in person. And the last point I wanted you to recognize from this scripture is Jesus' return will be in power to finalize his kingdom. Jesus' turn will be in power and establish or to read dominion, to finalize his kingdom. And I want to use the finalize his kingdom because some may teach that his kingdom has not been here. In other words, the kingdom of God is some type of future event. Well, I'm here to tell you that I believe the kingdom of God is now. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember, that was John the Baptist and Jesus' message. And so his kingdom is, is you and I when we embrace it. And we spoke a lot about the kingdom of God. I believe it's important because our whole church, the function is to develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. In other words, I believe that you can capture it. I believe that you can experience a reality of it here today. Even though it may be invisible to us, it's visible in the heart and in the church. And I believe as we see is that his kingdom was inaugurated as his ascension. Uh, take your Bibles and I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1. In other words, I believe Jesus kingdom, his dominion, his power was inaugurated in this time before at his ascension. Because in Matthew chapter 28, this is when Jesus, before he goes to heaven, says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does that mean? It means what it says. It doesn't mean, oh, God just gets to reign in the clouds. It doesn't just mean he just reigns in the heaven. It means all power, all authority has been given to him and he is reigning right now today. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. But look at Acts chapter 1 as we speak about his kingdom being inaugurated at his ascension. So when they had come together, speaking of the disciples, they asked him, Lord Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember, their mind is back at Zechariah chapter 9, 9 through 10. Jesus says, no, I've already told you there's an unexpected delay. But he goes on. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing in the heavens, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heavens? This Jesus, who was taken up from you to heavens, will come in the same way as you saw him go up to heaven. His kingdom was inaugurated as his ascension. It will be finalized when he returns with great power, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. 
Here's the challenge that I want us to get to, a word of encouragement. This will be a terrifying time for all those who have rejected Jesus and his kingdom. For all those who have said no to Jesus, who have said, no, I want to do it all my way, this will be a terrifying time. You can just imagine. But it's a hopeful time for all those who have embraced the kingdom of God. For those of us who have said yes to Jesus, who have said, I want your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, it will be a hopeful time. Hebrews says, and just as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, in other words, to pay the sin penalty, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So his second coming is an eager time in which we're saying, it is done. It is finalized. The kingdom that you and I are trying to create as a church will be finalized. We will love and care for each other in such a greater way. In Revelation 22, 20, he says, He who testifies to these things, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Lord, come quickly. It's going to be a terrifying event. And let me tell you, when Jesus comes, the end is too late to choose sides. So here's a word of warning. Embrace his kingdom today because he is coming and judgment will happen. The angels will, will separate the weeds from the tares and the tares, the weeds will be thrown into eternal fire. But for those of us who embrace, the Bible tells us to look and to pray for that day. I pray that you join with me as a word of encouragement, but also a word of warning that Jesus is coming, his return. He will have all dominion. All things will be put under his feet. And he will be a good, ruling, righteous king. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.